you learn the whole process, but once you go to a shop and you're invited, they have they, the assistants, they do, the they do all the right. cleaning. So you just do all the artwork and you wait around for things to uh, materialize in front of you. Uh, that sounds great. Yeah. I think I would have a whole different <laughs> attitude to our making under those circumstances. <laughs> you were the materializer. Mm. <laughs> I'm John Mejias in New York. And I'm Zach Smith on the West Coast. This is Weed Art, a podcast where we talk to a real-life visual artist about... It was the worst play I had ever read in my life. So I called them back and wow. said, I want to do this. This episode, we're going to talk to... Gronk, G-R-O-N-K. About... No, I can't have doubt. When I come into a situation like this, I'm kind of like a boxer. A boxer enters into the arena, and if you think about it too much, you're going to get knocked out before you even start. So my job is always to attack immediately the wall and not care where it's going to go, but eventually you knock it out, and it doesn't knock you out. So I can never have fear. Hello. We're here with Grog Contro. <laughs> Who just wandered into this mix. From down the block, of course. Yeah. Gronk lives down the block from me in downtown LA. I was saying, like, I'm one of the annoying people that's moved into his neighborhood. <laughs> How long have you been here? Well, I've been in the building that I live in now for close to 30 years. So I've been around for a while. Before that, I was on Spring Street and 4th. Spring and 4th used to have a transient hotel called the Grand Hotel. Right. And it wasn't very grand at all. It was a house of prostitution, drugs, and just the elite of the maladjusted that inhabit the place. For me, I thought it was going to be character building, so I moved in to that hotel. And I cleared it out, whatever was inside of the room, and made it into my studio. And I started to do my artwork inside of a small little room and one day I get a phone call and it's from MOCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art here in Los Angeles, that they wanted to do a studio visit. And I thought, oh my God, I live in the Grand Hotel. It's a house <laughs> of prostitution and drugs. And here are these curators going to come and visit me. This is going to be a sight. And so I'm up on the top floor of the stairway that leads into the lobby and watch for two curators to come by. Now, this is the 80s, so it's Chanel dresses, it's low black heels. They were wise enough to take off their jewelry, and they come in to the Grand Hotel. Of course, there's all the people roaming around in the lobby. They go to the front desk, and they ask the person at the front desk, we've come to see a grunk, and he said to them, that'll be $5 each. Because in a house of prostitution, you have to pay the front desk before anybody takes the elevator up. So here are these two women fumbling through <laughs> their Chanel purse, trying to find $5 each. They hand the $5 over to the person at the front desk. Of course, the front desk man is this big, heavyset man wife beater t-shirt, spills all over it, white, just really raunchy with a cigar in his mouth. And he takes their $5 and he points to the elevator. And I come to greet them as soon as they come up the elevator and open up. And they said, oh, we're here to see your work. You're the guy 
that actually does street pieces. You tape people to walls and call them instant murals. And I said, yeah. And they said, you do dinner parties on traffic islands? And I said, yeah, that's my artwork. I invite them into my room. They come in and I said, I'm working on these notebooks. And there's probably about 60 volumes of drawing notebooks. And I've been doing it on a daily basis. And here's a stack of them over here. And they look at it and they ask to see one of the notebooks and they open it up and they start going from page to page to page. They put it down and they say, thank you very much. And they leave. And I thought, okay, well, I guess nothing is going to happen because of this. <laughs> A day later, I get another phone call from them and they say, you have been selected for the next show that we're doing. It's called New Directions. Bill Viola is going to be having his first major museum show. Everybody that's on the list here is having pretty much their first big major show. And so they asked me, come to MoCA and we want to give you Frank Gehry's floor plans to the temporary contemporary, as it was called then. Now it's called the Geffen. And they said, you could do anything you want. What do you want to do? Do you want a survey of your work? And at the time, I thought I was too young for a survey. So I said, I want to do a painting the size of a football field, 300 feet across by 30 feet high. They looked at me and said, how long is that going to take you? And out of my mouth came the words, because I had never done anything like that before, two weeks. They said, what do you need? I said, coffee and donuts. They asked, where would you like your donuts from? Stupid me said Winchell's because it was open 24 hours a day when I probably could have... could have said Krispy Kreme. I could have said no. Paris. <laughs> and at the time, Mocha had money, so they would have done that trip to Paris to bring me the donuts. But I didn't. I said Winchell's and it was convenient for me. So I did the painting in two weeks, and all of a sudden, a painter was born here. And this is 1985. And before that, I had been doing more performance, conceptual-driven type work, like the taping of people to walls and doing more conceptually-based type of artwork. And then, all of a sudden, I became a painter. And I thought, well, you know, painting is a discipline. Everybody's poohooing it, especially in the 80s. Painting is dead. It can't answer any of the questions artistically, historically anymore. So I thought that was engaging. I thought that, you know, okay, maybe I could find some new life in the arena of painting because it is such an ancient medium. And it's been around just like printmaking is such an ancient one. But those kinds of things draw me to those mediums because they've been around for so long. For me, painting has always been a discipline. It means you have to really practice at your craft every single day, just as I did with my drawings every single day. And so all of a sudden, I started to do shows in different cities, New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, most of the West Coast. And then my work was going to Europe. France, Germany, Italy, and London. So all of a sudden, I had this career as an artist painter. And then by the 90s, mid-90s, I decided to drop out. And I didn't want to do galleries. I didn't want to do museum show necessarily. I stuck with universities 
And I kept a gallery in Paris, kept a gallery in Los Angeles, and that was it. And then I dropped the Paris gallery and just kept Los Angeles. And then I dropped the Los Angeles gallery and just went off on my own to stay in my studio a couple of blocks away and do my work. And I thought that was for me the most important decision was I didn't want the notoriety. I didn't want to practice within the art arena as I was seeing it being unfolded. Once you grow up in it and see how the dynamics works, it's something I didn't want to have any connection to really. So I stayed away from a lot of shows and galleries. And then I get a call and somebody asked me, would you like to do a show at Bergamont Station? which is a hub of galleries here in Los Angeles. And unfortunately for me, I said yes. It was a disaster. The gallery person wanted to sue me, the dealer. Because which one? <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> was it Richard Heller? Because that was the one that I was at. Well, I didn't want to sue Richard. Well, I just want to make sure. They wanted to sue me right. because I wanted to drop out of doing a show that was being crunched in so quickly, mm-hmm. I decided I don't want to show second-rate work of myself. I want to show first-rate. And if you'll have to put it off for several months so I can do the work. But they were saying, no, no, you have to go in at this moment. And this is all over the phone. I mean, it's, we're just having this discussion. So the gallery owner said, well, if you drop out, we're going to sue you. And I thought, well, this is a great relationship to have with a gallery, (laughs) is that you know that this person at any moment is going to threaten you. So I said, okay, I don't want to have any dealings with you. I'm going to do your show. I'm going to send somebody to go and hang it. Then that's it. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm not coming to the opening. I just want to go back and do my work in my studio and not have to deal with this again. So the show opened. It was successful for them. And all of a sudden, I wasn't getting my work back, nor was I being paid for all the work that had sold. And since the work was not coming back, and I asked for it, all of a sudden, I had to get lawyers. They had to combat the gallery. I finally got my work back, and I got paid for the show. But again, it was an experience I didn't want to go through again with a gallery. So I've been very cautious about uh, saying yes. And as you get older, you say the word no a lot more. So you're lucky I'm on this show. <laughs> wow. the, the trick that I used was I lived out the block. I was like, it'll be no effort. Yeah. I don't know if you ever have this policy, but like someone writes you a long email like, and uh-huh. they have a proposal of a project, right. and you go... Well, if you make it really easy, right. <laughs> like yeah. you don't have to fill out any forms. It was easy. I could have picked my milk and cereal up at CVS on the way or on the way back. So yeah. it's convenient. <laughs> I got all that out of saying, hey, so you live on Spring Street. Right. So I should just say random things and it's your story. <laughs> so, so you got shoes on, huh? <laughs> well, the thing is, with all of that happening in the 90s for me, I did a piece with a group called the Cronus String Quartet. Right. Now, the piece was written for me by a composer who actually lived in the same building as I do now. And we had both seen each other because I was doing a set for a production and he was doing the music for a theatrical production. And I looked over to him and I thought, well, he's probably the only other person that is sitting here watching this production and is bored 
because I'm totally bored of this theatrical piece that is unfolding. And so I went up to him and he said he's, he does the music. And I said, oh, I live downtown. You should come by and visit. So he came by and visit. So you guys were bored by the thing that you had been working on? Right, yes. Uh-huh. It was horrible. Well, less horrible than another production that I did at the Los Angeles Theater Center, which is down the block here on Spring yeah. Street. I was asked to come in and do a play. And they said, we think it's right up your alley. It's very magical realism, very Latino, as they put it. And I thought, oh, God, they don't know my work. And so they sent me the script. It was the worst play I had ever read in my life. So I called them back and wow. said, I want to do this. <laughs> I just thought it was horrible. It was called Stone Wedding. I won't give you any of the people involved in it but it was about a rock that falls in love with a tree. And I thought, well, you know, this will be at least interesting for me to do. Well, the play, of course, got horrible reviews, but the critics seemed to like the set. So all of a sudden, a set designer, just like at Boca, a painter was born, a set designer was born. But then this composer that I had met at a, this other production said, I really love this image uh, that you do of this woman with her back to the viewer, and you call her Tormenta, which in Spanish means storm. Right. And you repeatedly do her over and over. And I said to the composer, well, you know, I wanted to create my own mythological character. The Greeks had Medusa, Medea, Electra. Well, mine will be Tormenta. So it has a lineage that goes back into time, but you can't just do it once. You have to repeat it over and over and over again. So this image of Tormenta, she wears the same black dress, which is a V-back dress in all the series of paintings. But I took my cue also from a designer from the 1920s. Her name was Valentina. And you only ever see Tormenta from the back, right? You never like see her from the front. Always yeah. like doing pushing, something, pushing curtains open, right? Or, or standing strong. I wanted a woman that was strong but also glamorous at the same time. So that to me was an important quality of it. So with Tormenta, uh, Valentina, the designer, said, "Never dress for the season. Dress for the century." That means find an outfit that crosses over time, that has a timeless-like quality to it. So for me, that image of the woman with her back, with a V-back dress, has a timeless quality. So the composer said, I want to write the Tormenta Cantata for a string quartet, which is on one side of the stage, a soprano who's dressed just like the painting with her back to the audience, but I want you to be in it. So you'll have a wall that'll be 12 feet by 8 feet, and there will be a microphone attached to your paintbrush. So you hear the paintbrush going ch -ch -ch as it's painting, but it's also going to be the conductor baton because the string quartet will be following the tempo of the brush, which means I had to learn how to paint to a metronome in order to keep a tempo for the string quartet. Now, if the brush goes up, it's a cue for the soprano to hit vowels that go up. It's a 45-minute written composition, so we can't deviate from what the music score is. We can't just improvise and, you know, I'm feeling the music and I'm painting. It's a strict score, so we're all following the score, and the brush is conducting it, but it's also painting an image that the audience will see appear from a blank wall. 
So we tried it out and world premiered it at UCLA at Schoenberg Auditorium. And then all of a sudden we thought, oh, you know, we got such a good response. Let's take it on the road. So we did it in eight different cities. Did the cities. painting always look the same? The painting has elements that are written into the score. So it has to have, say, for instance, an image of a candle, an image of a lamp. Because in music, you echo things. It's a musical term. A lamp is more modern. Uh, a candle is something more ancient. And they're both about illumination. So those are written into the score. And if you do a candle shape, your brush goes down, long, short, up, long, short, and then you have the flame at the top. So the musicians know long line, short line, long line, short line, a flame at the top with their musical instruments. And so the brush becomes a musical instrument, it's conducting the piece, and it creates a work of art. So those were kinds of uh, things for me that made me enter into other aspects creatively. A director calls next, and he says, I'm doing a play called The Screens by Jean Genet. Uh, would you like to do all the screens for it? And I said, yes. The director's name is Peter Sellers, who does a lot of theater and opera here in the United States. So we hit it off really well, and then he called up and asked if I wanted to do something by Stravinsky. Essa Pekka Solomon, the conductor, was going to conduct it at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. It was these large paintings, 12 feet by 12 feet, that floated on the stage. So we did that. We all really got along really well. And then he asked, would you like to do an opera? And we did an opera called Anna de Mar. Then he said, would you like to do a Vivaldi opera? So we did uh, Griselda. And most recently, we did an opera called The Indian Queen by an English composer, Purcell. How uh, long ago was that? That was just a couple of years ago. It's traveled, it opened in Russia, went to Madrid, and then London. And next, it's going to Netherlands, Germany, back to Russia, and then to Hong Kong, I believe. So it has a life, it's traveling around. Is the All set made are... and then it, it travels and you stay home? No, there are times when you travel with the set and the set is done on <coughs> site. In the case of this one, it was to go to a place close by to Siberia called Perm. And I decided, I think I'd rather know what I can get here. There's a Home Depot close by. <laughs> you know why I, I go to Siberia. <laughs> so I did the set here. It was a joint production between Spain, England, and Russia. I did the entire set here, put it into these cardboard boxes that I labeled the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, because I wanted to send those send labels back. back. <laughs> and especially because it was going back to Spain. When it did arrive, I have an assistant that works in my studio. I sent him to Russia to go and <laughs> oversee the project. And so they loved him. They liked the way he dealt with things and immediately was reactive to any situation. And it was the first time, I think he was about 24 at the time, 23. So here's this young guy that never did an opera before. He's in the mix of a big production. So it was the test of fire and water immediately thrown into the mix. Before that, when I was doing the other operas, uh, I go to the site and actually create it in the production house, wherever that may be. And then sometimes when it travels, you go to the city that it goes to, 
One of the operas went to New York, Boston, and other places. So you have to oversee that because each stage is different. So you have to oversee how it looks inside of that setting. And my paintings are hand-painted, and usually I have no assistant. I just do it myself. So whatever is on that stage, I've painted and made. That's more of the abstract element. The singers or the people involved are the figurative element mm. in the piece. So they're moving around these paintings, and sometimes, you know, they may be in camouflaged outfits, and they go up against the wall, and you don't even see them. Oh, so nice. they kind of interact with the costume designer, the lighting designer. We all kind of work as a team together. So I think that's kind of been something that I really have enjoyed the past few years. And in May of this year, 2016, I'm doing a show at a place called the Craft and Folk Art Museum in Los Angeles. It's right across the street from LACMA. It's a lot of my sets, the props that I've made, the designs, the beforehand mock models of the sets, and some imaginary sets that I'm just coming up with that will comprise the show. And so that's what I'm working on in my studio now. Cool. Yeah. There's a robot <laughs> online that tweets magical realism plots like uh, one an hour by like combining elements mm -hmm. and a rock and a tree fall in love sounds exactly <laughs> like one of the things that we spit out by that robot. It's like on Twitter, it's like a biologist finds a shoe that takes him to space, you know. Right. <laughs> well, right after I did that and the reviews were really good for the set, I started getting offers to do other sets for other companies. And one of the companies is called East West Players, which is the oldest Asian company in the United States. And they asked me to come in to do a play about Chairman Mao's wife. And I thought, how many chances do I ever get to actually now have to research all of this? And so all of a sudden you're thrown into this mix of a different culture, a different sensibility, and whether you can do it or not. The play actually goes from the Gang of Four, not the band, but the Gang of Four. And so it was about her life in China, but also it went all the way up to Tiananmen Square, which she said she didn't take responsibility for. So uh, <laughs> I had to do some banners that the protesters were having in their hands during the Tiananmen Square protest, they have experts that come in to take a look and see if every character is correct. So they brought in these people to take a look at my calligraphy. And they said, uh, well, they were away from me and I thought, oh my God, they're talking amongst each other. I probably did something wrong, something nasty that I wasn't supposed to do for their protest signs. But then they came over to me and they asked, how did you learn how to do Chinese calligraphy so well? And I said, well, in my earliest stages, I used to paint with a spray can. A spray can is one continuous line, and it's kind of the way of push and pull. And they just love that fact that, you know, there's a similarity huh. between the graffiti and the Chinese characters. The theory of Chinese uh. calligraphy and painting has uh -huh. been remarkably stable for mm -hmm. like thousands of mm -hmm. years. They have a really specific vocabularies for like the energy of the, like you have right. to have ink and you have to have 
bamboo like right. bones like mm -hmm. and it's very similar to the way that like you know you have to write the same thing over and over right. fast and then move right it's interesting that well it's, it's, it's a one continuous line but it has to have like a certain bounce to it right. and legibility right. and then you stop right know? well there's an immediacy to it with the graffiti pieces that i used to do which don't do anymore haven't done in many many years you it, hear that lapd <laughs> it wasn't him it was the same kind of action, except the adrenaline and that spiritualness in the Chinese or the Japanese writing was that urgency to move away from the space that you're at, to get away before anybody sees you do what you did. Right. So there's a different kind of sensibility, but it's kind of the same thing as well. Yeah. I want to rewind to Little Gronk. <laughs> Uh, if, if that's all right, and like, <laughs> how did we get all the way, like before the hotel, right. before everything? So right. you grew up in LA, right? I grew up in Los Angeles. I went to a high school that was a prison. The prison was, they even made a movie of the high school I went to. The movie was called Stand and Deliver. Oh, okay. And it was about the high school math teacher. Was he there? I didn't take him. I wasn't into the math, but... <laughs> you avoided math altogether in high school? Which, I, that is a messed up school. <laughs> it was, and it probably still is. I'm not quite sure anymore. I haven't been back since. Well, let's go back even further. I was in middle school, and I was taking a ceramics class. I think you all start with hands-on type of things in classes. And, you know, you have your peachy folder, you're drawing on it, you're doing all kinds of different things. My ceramic teacher said, would you stay after class? I want to talk to you. And I said, oh, um, okay. She goes, I, I'm going to have lunch. Would you like to have some brown rice? And I thought, well, I've never had brown rice before. <laughs> sure. She was kind of that typical uh, ceramic teacher, hair disheveled, Birkenstocks, kind of black outfit, mini skirt with uh, beads from every nation in the world <laughs> around her neck. She was kind of the bohemian. It was kind of my introduction. She had brown to, rice. <laughs> she was a beatnik, as you it were. You were a Winchell's <laughs> man, and she was like, brown rice? <laughs> so I stayed for lunch with her to have the brown rice. <laughs> and she says to me, now, you're making all of these masks in my class. Now these masks are kind of elongated and you're putting these patterns on them and the patterns are very African. And I'm looking at her and I said, and you would know because you have all these beads across your neck and most of them have the patterns that I've been using for my ceramic pieces. And she goes, but you take them home and you never bring them back. What are you doing with all these masks that you've been making them? And I said, well, I'm burying them all over East LA, because in the future, I want an archeologist to find them and wonder how the hell did they get here? <laughs> that was the truth. <laughs> and that's why I was, I was making art on the street. So she said, okay, you're gonna take an awful lot, and she looks around, a lot of shit from a lot of people. Don't listen to them. Just continue to do what you're doing. So it was the approval of that from an adult that sparked my imagination that, okay, I can seek out and do different things. But then- You were always already doing some- Oh yeah. Like, I don't want to break your flow. Uh-huh. When was the first things that you saw when you were younger than that made you think, I want to make things, you know, I'm that kind of person? 
Okay, we'll go back to the coffee table that was delivered to our house. I lived with a single parent. It was my mom. And one day, a boomerang coffee table arrives. Now, everything was kind of a little old-fashioned inside the house. And all of a sudden, modernism was launched and tossed into the living room. And I would look at that boomerang coffee table and think, this is like the movie War of the Worlds. Because I would be watching War of the Worlds, and it had that kind of shaped, green-looking Martian ship. And I would sit on the coffee table and watch this movie. Now, that movie had ideally beautiful color. It was Paramount movie. So it was Paramount color. And that movie, the reds were red, the blues were blue, the greens were green. And it was very pop. For me, I think my information of wanting to make things stem from those B-movies from the 50s. I think those were kinds of things, like I would see a large bird from outer space called the giant claw. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at the claw has strings to it. But somebody made this. That's what I want to do. I want to be able to make things. And I think, again, it was the early exposure to a lot of sci-fi, a lot of B-movies, and trying to emulate that sensibility in the work. When I became what you know people call a painter, I went back to that time period of the paramount color, and I kept on thinking, well, my paintings are bright. They're like red, red, blue, blue, green, green. So they had a very pop kind of element to it. And then the sizing of the uh, canvases were always taking into consideration screen size. When I started to do the operas, it was like Cinerama. It engulfed everybody. Before that, it was Cinemascope at MoCA when I did the large, big painting. And before that, it was 35 millimeter. And when I was even younger, it was 16 millimeter projected on a TV monitor. So all of those kinds of things, I think cinema had an important play on the direction that I was taking myself and my artwork. So the early images were, you know, Attack of the Crab monsters. I would recreate the movie on a piece of paper. Or it was battle scenes, so I would recreate the battle scenes that I would see in a film. And then I was the library kid. I wanted to read everything from A to Z. The librarian stopped me. Where were you? In East Los Angeles. No, where in the alphabet? Oh, I got up to Camus. See. Wow, that's a lot of books still. <laughs> when she realized that Aeschylus, I... Aeschylus, <laughs> right? Baudelaire, done. So uh, she said, you're doing it all wrong. You don't read the alphabet to know everything. You have to go back to the Greeks first. Read the Greeks and build your way up to the present. But you had already read Aeschylus. Yes, I, <laughs> I was reading quite a lot. And I you know, figured the more you intake, the more you're able to give back. So your job as being a creative person, I feed me. I want more, I want more. And then you, know, you have the art books, which is A, and you start to see there's a history behind these paintings. There are people that lived out their lives, and they became intriguing. And a lot of them became my favorites, the writers that I saw and read. So how old were you when you were in the library, like in and out? Were you in middle school? Or? That was, no, that was elementary school. So this librarian, was this like one time, or was this like somebody who was like, wow. Well, the librarian was a big mystery because 
She was a very big woman. She had short cropped hair and she wore these Pendleton type jackets. She was a very almost farmer like overalls. And the parents in the neighborhood would tell the kids she dresses that way because she can't afford women's clothing. Well, we knew there was something more to the story <laughs> than that. <laughs> But she, you know, gave me that passport of knowledge in a way, you know, to take in the information. You had the Bohemian that was the middle school teacher. But then you get to high school, and before then, it's almost the age of conformity. And you get the teachers in art that wants everything to look like their work or work that you see in a photograph. And I was not. The type to do that because I had a history of creating things. And so, my <coughs> high school teacher, which I remember to this day, and so do the students that were there, I bring in these heat prints. And the heat prints were done on sheets of paper where I would take the iron that you iron your clothes with and I would do it at different Fahrenheits and burn into the paper. But before I would do that, I would line the paper with a first coating of mayonnaise. Now, growing up with a single parent, your responsibility was to take care of yourself. So there was a lot of mayonnaise to make the sandwiches, the bologna sandwiches, the white bread, and the purple Kool Aid. And so that was kind of the beginnings for me of a little bit of independence, was I had to do that. But since we had so much mayonnaise in the refrigerator, that became part of my medium. I did all of the heat burn prints into the paper. It smelled horrible. I took it to the class for my final, spread it out onto the floor where people can look, and everybody was reacting to it and saying, Oh my, this smells horrible. All of a sudden, the teacher comes and starts yelling at me, There is always one. There's always a rotten apple. This is the rotten apple. I bring paintbrushes out of my own money. I bring watercolors for you kids. I bring all of this material. And what does he do? He gets mayonnaise sheets of paper and presses this iron into them and gives it a name. What was the imagery of it? Or was it just shapes of it was, irons? It was, or it was, it was, it was kind was of my haystacks, the Monet haystacks. Okay. So it's <laughs> shapes. He did his. With different times、uh, and different seasons. Yeah, the, the well, mine was, was different temperatures. So, so it was like the impression of the iron at different. Yeah. And the mayonnaise would do what the was smell. The, it would bring it was up, just the smell, but was, what was, did it make the impression different?、Uh, it made it, it greasy. It gave it a, a greasy, almost. So it was just、texture. there to be there. It, it didn't、yeah. like, help the print、oh, happen、no. or anything.、Uh, well, in some cases, it probably was good that the mayonnaise was there <laughs> because the paper, kind of at the far end of it,、uh, after you've done several, It just turned charred black, like you know, a barbecue, just really, really black. But I mean, you just put the mayonnaise on it to put it on there. It didn't change how it looked. The, the motive wasn't to change how it no. looked. It was just, hey, mayonnaise. Well, the, I knew it was going to give off a smell. And that was and part that of it. And that for me was the smell because I wanted to test to see how does one use your senses. And most times we don't. Smell a painting, unless it's an oil painting, and you kind of are familiar with this. But if you have a sheet of paper that burns and there's a marking on it and it's got mayonnaise, you figure, okay, this is going to give it a different kind of smell other than oil paint. Like mayonnaise. Yeah, like mayonnaise. <laughs> so the teacher starts to scream 
and yell at me and says, get out of this class. And I was very combative because I always thought I was smarter than the teacher. So I said, well, I would need a hall pass. And he looked at me and said, get out of here. Now, that volleyball match went on the students, myself, and the teacher back and forth. Get out. I can't leave unless I have a hall pass. Get out. I can't leave unless I line. have a hall pass. Get out of here. And then all of a sudden, he grabs the eraser from the chalkboard, picks it up and throws it at me. I dodge and it hits the girl right behind me. And she gets a big puff on her hair of white chalk going all over the room. And then he realizes what he's done and he goes to his desk in front of everybody and starts to cry. And so all the students look at me and say, you better get out of here. And I said, but I need a hall pass. <laughs> I can't leave. <laughs> and then I figured, you know what? He's crying up there. He's defeated. I better go. So I walk out. The teacher next door calls me over when she sees me in the hallway. Come here, come here, come here. We heard everything. Just go sit in the back of the room and we'll talk about it afterwards. She was the kind art teacher. You right. know. This other one was the well, one. And what was she dressed like? Well, she was... You remember the outfits <laughs> of all the kind women. She was life. the haute couture uh, okay. of the school. <laughs> yeah, she was the glamour woman. So, yeah, she had a, a, a tasteful array this of This is clothing. a great movie. <laughs> and so what happened with that was the students, I think, you know, were frightened by this encounter. The teacher wanted to fail me. Other teachers supported me and said, you know, just... Give him a, a, a passing grade. He has to get a passing grade to leave. So he finally or he had to compromised. Take art all over again. It's such a fucked up system, right, in America? I was like, this is why the Soviet system failed. Uh, that's like early experiences of being engaged in art. Once high school was over, that's when I met a group of like-minded kids. Were we all just buying mayonnaise? Like in the mayonnaise mm -hmm. aisle? No, this was buying... <laughs> cheap material because we didn't have any money so it was to buy a roll of masking tape a roll of film and create something with it and where did you meet them though one of them was in my class she was the girl that got hit with it oh, oh nice that was um patsy valdez patsy, patsy. yes and so she was in the group willie had on and harry gumbo were the other two members of oscar so we began doing things with a roll of tape with a roll of film we decided let's go and do instant murals and making a thing about murals that they didn't have to become eyesores that you know you look at one and you see it every single day and you just think why can't somebody just do away with that it's been there for so long well, what kind of murals were you thinking of when you were thinking of of that it, mm -hmm. because in la there's different generations of right. murals like right. we have like relatively recent kind of weird surreal ones yeah. and then mm -hmm. we have ones that are sort of like tribute to marilyn monroe right. ones and mm -hmm. then we also have like old like Mexican like mm. era ones. We have right. like WPA ones. Like So when you're thinking of the oppressive murals, what were you thinking? Uh, I was thinking more of the ones that were being done at that particular moment in time. There were people that weren't really trained in art that were doing paintings. And yet 
they sparked an interest in me because they were more community-based artists. Right. And I thought that was more avant-garde than anything that was taking place in the galleries or museums. Mm. Because here was somebody that was trying to make a difference and doing it with art. So I applaud them for that. But when it becomes entrenched yeah. in a Stalinistic kind of sensibility yeah. that this is the only way a mural is done, that's when you have to say, no, no. Yeah, I mean, it's like walking that line between like doing something that's a like community oriented, right. but it's not safe. I mean, that's hard. I mean, right. like the generations like in New York, like mm -hmm. so a lot of artists doing that was like trying to like, you know, work with kids, work right. with families or whatever, right. but they still want to do something that's like public and like, it's hard. Well, I think that to me was part of my upbringing was once I've done these operas, once I've done these paintings inside of a museum or university context, I was going to do an outreach. And it was to tap into the high school's middle school kids, because I know the experience that it could be harmful. <laughs> and yeah. so for me, it was always, okay, the museum, you want me to talk with elementary school kids? Fine. Most artists would never want that at all. They don't interact with they would like a, an intellectual level to talk about art work. right there also a lot of people are scared to talk so i figured i could do it and i'm going to learn from the experience you know you learn so much from the kids i was in rochester new york i think they have a museum called the memorial museum that i did a show and it was a one-man show where i was brought in to do an on-site piece and one of the kids, probably about seven, eight years old, raises his hand as he's watching me painting. And the question he asked was, was there any moment you had doubt? And I looked at him and I said, you know, college students don't even ask questions about doubt. So I asked him, are you speaking of an existential kind of doubt that Sartre spoke about in being and nothingness? The teacher goes, okay, kids, time to go to the next exhibition. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I'm just kidding. No, I can't have doubt. When I come into a situation like this, I'm kind of like a boxer. A boxer enters into the arena, and if you think about it too much, you're gonna get knocked out before you even start. So my job is always to attack immediately the wall and not care where it's going to go, but eventually you knock it out and it doesn't knock you out. So I can never have fear. And that answered it and it simplified it enough for all of these kids. That but you enter reactive. Mm -hmm. Like you enter ready to react right. rather than like with a plan. Right. And it helps like with the kids, like if your a sheet of paper is put in front of you, and the teacher says to write something, if you have doubt, you are going to spend most of your time wondering, what should I write? Just write. Yeah. Doesn't matter if it makes sense. I mean, there's certain temperaments where they will wrestle with it in a different way, mm -hmm. but it's interesting to know that that you, like I think there's a lot of people like, they are architectonic in mm -hmm. the work that they make, and so they require a lot of pre-thinking or else it doesn't have the structure that they want. Right. But they probably also deal with a lot more doubt, you know. Right. So it's interesting that you make a mark and you're reacting to that mark with the right. next mark. And you build it up. I mean, yeah. it's the initial thing that is appearing doesn't have to be the finish end of anything. It's just the start of something. And I never think, you know, that each piece that I do has to have an ending. Like, this is the last mark that can ever be done to it. I detach myself from these pieces. And I like the ephemeral notion of you do something 
And like that wall that I did in Rochester, somebody is going to come in and completely whitewash it. And it goes back to being a white wall. The large scale piece at MoCA, after that huge scale was accomplished, it went back to being a white wall. It took it out of the art market. It gave it a sense of performance, yeah. which is the earlier types of work I was doing. Right. So when you have a thing that is like a final painting and you sell the painting, do you feel like it's a different kind of work or you just like, oh, well, they took it away from me, right. but that's the price of doing right. it. Is that a compromise or is that like, those pieces are actually, I'm done putting marks right. on those. For me, I don't marry the objects I make. So let it go. And for me, that's an important thing about but how do you decide when to let it go like because i assume you like a bunch of things in the right. house and then you like do something with them when you feel right. inspired to do it but like when do you decide like i'm not gonna do any like because right. those are two different things if you're right. always working on it it's always in process right. it never stops right. but then if you give it to someone and they sell it then it has stopped so well which ones one, get the one of the things about doing something in the privacy of your studio it's like speaking in tongue I'm never quite sure where it's going. When I'm doing something in public, like where people are gonna be coming in, it's a different experience because they may add to the piece itself right. by just a simple conversation that is taking place. In my studio, I don't have those conversations with somebody else. So it's just me figuring out my process, where things are leading. And I don't think one piece answers everything to the body of work that you create. It's merely one letter in your alphabet. You have to assemble several letters to form a word, let alone a s sentence, let alone your story or your narrative. But you'll like so do a thing like just paint like one shoe. Like right. it seems like you would like take one object sometimes right. and just be like, how much can I get out of this one? They don't tell a story by right. themselves, but you're seeing how much you get out of it. Right, well I think it's the experience of learning from each thing that you do do and assembling and remembering and recalling exactly what it is that you did. And that accumulation is your body of work. You don't create a style by like, oh, I'm creating a style. No, it's looking back at your history and seeing how it progressed. And sometimes those things in the past are just as interesting as the things you're doing now, or sometimes they fail and, and fall through and perhaps are not as successful as the work you're working on now. So for me, it's like, you know, you look back and you see the body of work that you've created, and that's your ammunition. That's the thing that stimulates you. It's looking back at that kid that was intrigued by a boomerang coffee table. Well, that boomerang coffee table shape still enters into the paintings that I do now. The boomerang comes back. <laughs> so, so let's boomerang back to ASCO, mm -hmm. right? When you guys are starting, you're in different murals. Right, we were doing uh, things that were ephemeral, things that didn't have to cost a lot. Uh, you didn't have to buy paint necessarily. How did other people find out about them? You would do them on the street. One of the things about ASCO was to document everything you did. And so we had a camera that documented us and our transformation during our life experiences, doing things with one another. And some of OSCO members were still living at home, so the artwork was being done inside of one of the parents' garages. And then we'd go into the middle of the night and hop into a Denny's, and Denny's was open 24 hours, so that was our local coffee shop at the time, to talk about, you know, the world is really a rock, and we're on this rock, we're going through space, and no one is driving it. So we were trying to be profound to one another at a Denny's restaurant, and then take some of the conversations, some of the 
interactions and do different pieces with that. Then we realized, you know, Latinos are not present too much in film. And everybody's complaining about the fact that they don't see themselves in film. Well, our thinking was, well, we're lucky because so much film is really horrible and bad. But let's create our own sense of cinema. Let's call it the no movie, making movies without the use of celluloid, where we become the actors, we create a scenario, and we document all of that with photographs. Now, at the time we were doing it, we never had heard of Cindy Sherman because she was probably in junior high school at the time when we were doing our no movies, and she developed so her you guys cinema. So you didn't have like a time machine? No. That sucks, because it could have helped. <laughs> you could have really bit her style. <laughs> but we are now recorded as right. those people that were doing things along those lines of the no movie, and people now have written about it as being a part of the avant-garde of American cinema. Of course, we took our cues from so many different things. Over time, we were doing these midnight pieces of writings on the walls, taping people to walls and documenting everything that we did. Eventually, Osco started to grow because other people wanted to participate. So all of a sudden, you had a, a group of people that wanted to do things, and then we could do things in front of people inside of a different kind of setting. We would do a warehouse or a play. Film was an important part. We were taking information from many different sources. I think it was into the 80s, probably the same time that I had a show at MoCA. Oscar was beginning to dissipate. Willie had a band called The Illegals, which was a kind of a new wave punk, yeah. punk band. Patsy had decided to go back to school, so she was at Otis Parson in New York. And all of a sudden, I was that discovered painter, and now I had to do my painting. So the group kind of just split and went into their own different directions. I have two questions about Asko. Like, uh -huh. First, what were you day jobbing during that? And the second, when was the first time an institution noticed you guys? Right. Well, like, like in 85, the institution was MoCA for me. But it, they must yeah. have heard of the performances. There were some rumors. Other, was it in the newspaper? They just right. they didn't just see it on the street right. downtown. No, right? I think it was the academics. Mm. It was people discussing this and kind of trying to figure out how does a group of young kids from East Los Angeles who most people would think are isolated from the rest of the world, how do they come up with being a conceptual performance group? It was kids coming out of CalArts. That was their favorite people of choice. But I mean, did they just hear basically off the street? I mean, Well, you know, there were rumors flying since I did my first play still as a teenager in a park. I called it Cockroaches Have No Friends. Wrote the play, staged it with a bunch of young teenage kids, teachers and professors from colleges came to see it. Mm. They had heard, there's this guy that's doing these Dada-esque right. type of artwork. So people, I think, were curious. And then the college students and professors were hearing rumors about, oh, there's this guy, Grunt, there's this guy, Willie, he's doing these murals, or Patsy, she's kind of the modern Frida Kahlo. <laughs> so there was an interest. Plus, we were documenting everything 
then people started to ask us, could you come to our art class? Jane Dixon was on, mm -hmm. and she was talking about New York in the 80s. Mm -hmm. One thing she kept saying over and over is just, there were less artists. Mm -hmm. So they'd do something on Times Square, and she yeah. listed who was there, and it was like everyone you've heard of from mm -hmm. that time. Do you have a feeling that there were less artists organically right. creating installations, theater on right. the street? And you asked about, what did I do as a day job? Well, I was one of the co-founders of LACE, which is the Los Angeles Contemporary Exhibitions. So you had all of the contemporary performance artists coming through. You had Mike Kelly with his band performing there. So you were aware that people were doing things, but you also had different people of different cultures that is uniquely Los Angeles in many ways. Yeah. And these cultures sometimes are separate from the dominant culture. And they're able to do their work, not necessarily in the museum context or the gallery type context. Uh, in 1978, I decided to do a show called the Dreva Grunk Show. Now the Dreva Grunk Show was an artist, Dreva, lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And we had met here in Los Angeles in about 1972. And over a, about a six year period, we corresponded through the mail, and we kept our correspondence. It was decided that we would have punk bands play for the opening night of the show. And this, Alice and the Bags uh, played. We had another group called Nervous Gender. X wanted to go on, but the police came before they could set up. So here we had this moment where Punk bands were not something you had in a gallery type setting at the time. The police show up, they didn't realize that most of the downtown area, nobody was around. And here is this music coming from a four-story building and all these people are gathered to go in to experience the show. Well, of course, Dreva and I knew that our artwork would more than likely be trashed. And of course it was. We took the chance to see what would happen with inside of a gallery setting, these punk bands taking off and all of these people going wild in it. People but I mean, were, you weren't just running lace as a day job. That wasn't putting food on the table, right? I I, mean, yes, we, we were all hired by the city. So you got out of high school and you got hired immediately? Yeah. Mm -hmm. To buy the city to run lace? Yeah, what it was that they had applications for artists to bring What was culture. the lady who hired you wearing? <laughs> a bathing suit <laughs> yeah you're behind the desk at a gallery you're seeing all of these art stars coming through yeah. you get to experience live performances and people doing things that are intriguing and you're making art at the same time it also sounds like part of the story is the golden age of arts funding being right. decent we've right. got lace is a big part of this story and then the nea well um, you know what happened too was originally when the city decided to give money to the artists we were told to go to a place that didn't necessarily in their minds had art and they picked el monte in Los Angeles. And so we went there and opened up a gallery in El Monte. Well, El Monte didn't want us because here were these people running around with video cameras and doing these strange things in their exhibition space. So we got kicked out of the first location. And then we had a scout come to downtown LA 
and there was an empty space and we renovated the space. And since the bottom floor was a bridal shop, we decided to call the place Lace. So that's how Lace that actually yeah. got its name. Because then they're still there. <laughs> it's still bridal shops. So. Yes. Did you consider yourself part of the uh, punk scene at the time? I was involved in it, but more on the outside of it. I never thought of myself as a punk. I was more excited about doing my artwork rather than following that kind of a movement. But music has always been an important part. Anything to me that was kind of exciting or changing the way we hear things, I wanted to experience it. Were you always an opera guy? Uh, yes. From day one? Uh, yeah, my early beginnings is more classical music, and I do play the piano. That is something for me that music has always been in the background. So when somebody asks, now you're going to do this piece and I'm writing a music score, you're going to have to read it because it's a written score. You're going to perform it with a brush. You're going to conduct it. All of those things, there's a familiarity to it, but yeah. then it's learning it anew right. for a particular piece. I don't necessarily play music when I do my artwork in my studio. I have in the background movies that mm. are playing, and most of them are B-movies from the The ones 50s. you've seen before. Yeah. I mean, you did that book about the giant claw, right? The giant claw is an important element in several of the imagery that I've been doing. Another book I did was one day you'll be one of us. And it was written by two poets, Gail Ronsky and Chuck Rosenthal, and I did all the visual images for it. It's going to be performed at the Craft and Folk Art Museum in Los Angeles uh, sometime this summer. So music and literature, all of that has played an important part in my work. A lot of the paintings uh -huh. have, they have like an all over mm -hmm. geometric repeated thing. Mm -hmm. Is that to you a rhythmic yes. structure? I can say that a large painting is like full orchestration. A smaller piece is a chamber piece. All of those things, I think because of the knowledge of music, play into what it is that I do visually. The repeated shapes and forms are when people see rows of musical notes. It's patterns, it's yeah. shapes that repeat themselves. And those are kinds of things that intrigue me, is uh, those repeated patterns, repeated shapes. Some of the coloring has shifted and changed over time. The Tormenta image has shifted, and sometimes the big scale pieces are still present. They feel much more built than like a Wilfredo Lamb or a de Kooning. Even though they're all over abstract paintings, right. they seem like... There's a structure to them. They yeah, have but a structure. It seems like you would like make a yellow over mm -hmm. here and then make sure you put that same yellow all the way across. Mm -hmm. It's more architectural. Mm -hmm. You're building yeah. and you're putting pieces together alongside one another so that you're building this piece up. And sometimes when you say you put a yellow here and you repeat it, sometimes that's just the first layer because something is gonna go over that yellow. And for me, it's the reaction of one color on top of the other color. I was watching the YouTube video. Uh -huh. You were making a lot of prints. Mm -hmm. And it's the way you were working this is very theatrical. <laughs> Most artists, it's, it's very boring to watch them. Right. Watch them Right. <laughs> yes, I think it comes out of the fact that some 
type of work that I was doing early on, you didn't stick around for the police to show up. Okay. So you do it immediately and leave. And I think I still have that kind of sensibility in my work. But also that sense of you have a camera, there's somebody there. You're probably going to do something in a very theatrical way to begin with. And like I said, when you are in isolation, like in your studio, I'm never quite sure of the direction that I'm going to take. I have like a daily kind of ritual and I live a very low-key life. I'm not somebody that goes to openings, and sometimes I don't even go to my own shows. I don't like crowds of people. My ritual is, of course, you wake up in the morning. My first thoughts are for a cup of coffee. I walk down the block. I sit at syrups, and I do at least maybe one or two drawings every single day during the time of drinking the cup of coffee. And I take a photograph of the cup of coffee that I'm drinking and the drawing, then I post it on Instagram and Facebook. So there's an audience there waiting for the next image that you're going to be doing that day. So each day I post an image and there's another friend of mine who lives on Spring Street, his name is Tanner. For the past four years, we have been going to the same coffee shop. We have our little morning ritual of doing the drawing. And now we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of drawings from every single day that we've drank that cup of coffee. And for me, the important thing was not the drawing. It was the photograph that you take with your phone. For me, that was the important thing is to document that moment with this utensil that you have, this instrument. But also I did a book and uh, the first 50 pages is me turn the book over, the other 50 pages is Tanner's work. So it's all about documenting this. Uh, eventually, you know, we'll do an even bigger production of the book and the record of two people going to a coffee shop and sharing our lives almost like in a diary-like way because the drawings are more intimate because all you have is your mind and your wrist, whereas a large painting is physical. You're using your whole body to create a shape, a line, a gesture. Smaller pieces, I think they're more psychological. They have this intimacy between the hand and the mind. It's your first gesture of the day to make something or to create something. This is kind of an abstract question. I'm going to try to back my way into it because I'm not... Okay. <laughs> I saw a show recently. There's a graffiti artist down mm -hmm. from San Francisco named Zarathustra. Mm -hmm. She's, you know, a street artist, mm -hmm. but she had put up in the gallery a bunch of walls inside the gallery to plywood walls mm -hmm. so that she could then street art them right. you know some of the things in installation were paintings uh -huh. just hang on the wall like canvases right. and some of them were kind of patterns that had been stuck on the wall in order to really do what she did she had to kind of create an order that she could violate mm -hmm. somehow or, or intervene in a space she was trying to create a new spaces to set up, like, what can I do with a new space right. was the point of the painting more than the painting. And I'm right. wondering, you were doing these murals, mm -hmm. and then Instagram is like, well, now I have this device right. that can interact with people in this way. Well, how can I push into this space right. with art and with the set design, too? It's like you're trying to, you're interested in the spaces mm -hmm. almost as much as what you're putting in the spaces. Sure. How do I interact with that new space in mm -hmm. a new way? Right. Well, I think also the fact that calling yourself an artist, you don't live in isolation. You have the ability to share. 
you share with other people what you've created and done. You don't live in a vacuum. It's like with the intention, eventually, somebody may see this. So you're actually in the act of sharing your ideas. And I tell people a lot of the times, look, I don't have the answers to the world's problems, nor do I try to solve it necessarily in my work. I'm an observer of a particular moment in time. This is my time right now. I want to share those observations. I want people 300 years from now to look back and say, oh, this is what this person stood for. This is what this person did. These are his observations of 2016, back to the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So it's kind of like, where did you stand as a human being? What did you stand for creatively? Those to me are things that I want to leave behind. But going into the act of using a space, sometimes when I'm asked to do a museum show, I'll go on site to take a look at the museum space and spend some time in there. I did one show at a museum where they had a skylight roof. When the sun is going across, it's going to change the reaction to the walls. Light levels go up and down. It almost became the fact that this room is breathing on its own. I'm going to do an installation here where it's kind of like the inside of human beings' bodies. There'll be arteries, veins, intestines, long heart. But I'm going to mix it up with the interior of a landscape, which is roots, seeds, pods, germination, and combine those landscapes together. And in harmony, hopefully, it'll breathe. I did one show very similar to that, and the uh, museum director asked me to go on the radio in Wisconsin at five in the morning. I thought, who the hell listens to the radio? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was because it's the cheese capital, and they have a lot of farmers. So this museum director thought they listen to the show, go on the radio and promote the show at the museum. So I went on the show and I told them about the fact that I'm doing the landscapes and the breathing and the experience of living through an earthquake in Los Angeles. And I said, you know, the entire space just went completely dark. All the lights crashed. Anything that was on the wall came falling down. This was the Northridge earthquake and I lived across the street. But I made it sound like Orson Welles telling the story of War of the Worlds on the radio. The plates went crashing down (laughs) and all of a sudden, you know, I had to block the tray that came flying in my direction. And so, you know, I'm telling the story about how landscape, how people are connected with the land. We take our food from the land, we ingest it, it goes inside of our bodies. So we're always a part of the land. Well, of course, Farmer John, his wife, and seven kids I hear coming up the stairs to where I'm doing the installation. I heard you on the radio and I brought my entire family because I wanted them to see what a grunk looked like. Well, you know them (laughs) earthquakes you have in Los Angeles? Well, you know the same thing you were saying happens to us. We have to go underground when a tornado hits. And so all of a sudden here is urban grunk talking to farmer John in middle America. Our eyes are wide open because we've experienced these similarities. And this is the first time he's inside of a museum. For me, those kinds of things can alter the direction of the piece because once he left, I wanted to do these swirling shapes that represented 
the tornadoes he spoke about. I would have never had thought of that or had done that in my work, but it was that act of interacting with somebody that came through the museum. So in a way for you, was doing that radio show part of the piece because it's part of the communication of yeah. the thing? Yeah, well, one of the things is I want people to see even the supplies I use. Because when people come into the museum, they're going to go up to the cart that you have all your paint and brushes. And I will remind them, this paint come from, from your local hardware store. These brushes came from the store that sells them for 99 cents each. With this bucket and this paint, I'm going to create this piece that's here in front of you. So it demystifies that whole notion that art has to be so expensive in order to be creative, right. stimulating, and it brings in a group of people that can see products that are locally bought can create this work of art. I get the feeling a little bit that if I grab any one piece, mm -hmm. I'm almost taking a slice mm -hmm. out of one very large artwork and almost artificially trying to focus on it. Mm -hmm. Any piece I point to, I'm like, why is this here? Because it was all the other stuff that was there. Sure. You know, so it's like one very big piece, right. which is you started making work at a certain time. Right. It's all kind of one thing. Right. I guess if you're making a set design, mm -hmm. you do think as someone who's been given an assignment, right. many of the people there will only see that set right. design. And so you've got to think, how do I set up the project from their point of view and they're seeing one thing? Right. Is it different? Was it a different moment when you started thinking, okay, these are going to be people who are going to pay, sit down, mm -hmm. and they will interact with my art in one way. Right. And now I have to, I'm thinking it through their eyes in a slightly right. different interaction. Well, I think what people don't realize when, for instance, you're doing an opera set, there's a lot of research that goes into it. You're researching the music, you're researching the composer, you're researching the time period that it was done in, you're researching not only the composer, but who did they know. I did an opera that was based on Garcia Lorca, the Spanish playwright and poet. It was also seen through the eyes of the woman who produced all of his plays in Spain. She was considered the Spanish Sarah Bernhardt. She was an actress, and she was giving money to Lorca to do his plays. And she was pleading with Lorca to leave Spain because the fascist government was rising there. And so she was on a tour. And when the fascists took power, they forbid her to come back into the country. So here was this woman that no longer had a country because she couldn't go back. So she ended up traveling to Mexico, Argentina, Uruguay, Cuba. And her last years were spent on the East Coast teaching at Smith College. Here is this woman who is the great Sarah Bernhardt of Spain, and her greatest role was to become a teacher. So that was kind of what the opera is about. So you're researching all of this. You're researching the time period. So there are similarities to the set that I'm going to do, perhaps from Picasso's Guernica, because it is at the same time that all of this is taking place. So there are things that I'm pulling from historically and putting it in, into the piece that I would not necessarily have done with my own work. But that impact of actually doing all of the studying and all of the research is that it's going to filter into your other work. So a lot of the things from these different productions have gone into what it is that I'm producing. Now, I have the best chance to do these things, these sets, with a 
director that allows his creative team, the lighting designer, costume designer, set designer, to be creative. Because we're all on the same page. I know you're going to do the research. I know you're going to be looking things up. He's not going to come in and says, you know, a little blue there, a little red there. That's not going to happen. You are responsible to hold up your end in a production. Like so this. rather than a lot of their paintings might be uh -huh. seen in a context of all your other work, mm -hmm. the audience is seeing it in a context mm -hmm. of other things they might have seen before. Right. So you're kind of shifting it to like an alternate world. I mean, you mentioned Picasso. Well, like, mm -hmm. there are other artists that were interesting to you when you were young, besides the movies, mm -hmm. you know. I want to guess, though. I'm seeing some Max Beckman. Am I right on that? Are you seeing what? Max oh, that's that was kind of what the critics usually saw. Ah, oh, John, you um, did it. You were that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and whenever somebody would say that, I would always think, oh, my goodness, one of my heroes. Uh, yeah, so Max Beckman was one of the artists, but he came out of a milieu also in a very political time period. Well, I'm coming out of a time period of civil rights where a whole group of people were kind of disenfranchised in the United States. You have a political milieu that you're growing up, you're a part of it, you're born into that as well. So I think that also had an impact. But then you look at George Gross, who's another German expressionist. And again, there's the lines that he did. And he's an observer. He's completely like what I had been saying earlier. You're an observer of that moment in time. Well, he leaves Germany because, you know, the, they don't want him there, comes to the United States, and all of a sudden his work is not as strong and powerful anymore. But when he was in Germany and experiencing all of that, it was like the peak of what he was doing. So for me, you know, I admired that. I admired, you know, a lot of different artists. Uh, Cy Tombley is another one with just his gestures, paintings. I mean, you look at my Tormenta image, the woman with her back to the, the viewer, well, it's Madame X from John Singer Sargent. So, you know, there is a history, but it's also Igmar Bergman in Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious, because she is wearing the same dress inside of that movie from the 40s. So, again, it's like finding things that have historical referencing, but also putting in a sensibility of contemporary times. Now, you look at Tormenta and you think, well, why that strong image of a woman? Well, I don't ask that at all. <laughs> uh, Your whole, like, every story, there's an important woman <laughs> who helps you out, right. who has a distinctive garment. What was Patsy wearing when she got hit with that eraser? <laughs> in high school, she was like the almost the Sophia Loren of high school. So she had all of these admirers. And of course, the reason I'm thinking that he was crying was that she was the teacher's pet. Mm. So he noticed when I moved and he hit her instead. I think that was one of the reasons he went to go cry at the table because she pets. loved her. And she would always tell him, stay away from him. Don't, you know, he's the rotten apple. Yeah, she had a following of young guys and she was the mod person of the school. She had the boots, the black boots, the mini skirt, a standout in that whole arena of high school. I think for her, art making was an escape. You know, it was an escape from everything that was going on in her life. And I think she still maintains that in her body of work. You see things that are kind of painful, but she does them 
in a colorful way, not as harsh, but it's always puzzling. Nothing is settled in her work. Everything is always in constant move. And so for me, it's always intriguing to see what she'll come up with next. But yeah, we both grew up out of, out of the same kind of experiences in many ways. Do you still see the other ASCO people? Mostly Patsy. Yeah, the I other see. ones I don't, but Patsy, I do. Willie, I, I see, you know, during murals, and Harry's a professor at a couple of colleges, I think Cal Arts and Cal State Northridge. I, I don't see him at all. Um, but Patsy, she's come around to the studio and we hang out. Yeah. I don't talk for almost two hours. Yikes! Well, it's my middle name. No, it's the it's the question that everybody always asks. <laughs> <laughs> Grunk is the middle name. So the full name is Glujo Grunk Nicandro. If I asked you to say that again, you probably only remember Grunk. So Glujo in my experience in elementary school, was glue, glue, everything sticks to you. I thought, I'm not going to live through life hearing that chant all through middle school and high school. So just call me Gronk. Good call. And so Gronk was the stronger of the names. Nicandro is an unusual name, so nobody can ever pronounce it. Glujo, nobody can ever pronounce it. So Gronk was the easier but legend has it that during labor, my mother was reading a National Geographic. And she was looking at this village in Brazil. She is not Brazilian, but that's what they have in the waiting room at uh, usual hospitals. And she was flipping through it, and she saw this word gronk. And it was a bird that was crucified onto this wooden stake and carried through the village and it meant to fly. And she liked that. So she said, you know, I'm going to use this as your middle name, Gronk. I'm just kind of lucky she wasn't reading uh, an auto mechanic book. Yeah. Because it could have been spark plug. <laughs> so, so Gronk was the cooler. And then everybody just called me that, you know, from early on. So friends say Gronky, some say Gluyo still. But that's rare. Grunk is pretty much what everybody says. The opera paintings, right? Because like, you have to do research. Like this is a planned image, right? Mm -hmm. Are these less improvisational to you in in making them? Do they feel different to make than the ones where you you know? Right. The background is conventional grunk, and so is that platform that they're all standing on. Mm -hmm. That's my color palette. Those are shapes and forms. But there was this notion of two serpents making an appearance. Right. So there's these big, I mean, for people who are on the radio, uh -huh. there's these two big uh, serpent faces right. that are clearly like large shapes that had to be planned out and filled right. in, you know. Right. That to me is taking me out of my comfort zone. And all of a sudden I'm doing something that I'm not used to doing. And I enjoy that because it's a learning experience. Some people are going to have to maneuver that on stage. And so you're thinking about that, but you're also thinking that the costume designer is working with you because her color palette is going to be similar in some ways or strikingly different. 
and then the lighting designer can wash everything a different color and all of a sudden you're seeing this orange and blue painting that now has just turned completely black or red. So it's kind of, you know that these possibilities can happen to make actually your painting get enhanced even tenfold. Well, this was a good conversation with my neighbor down the block, good. Zach, <laughs> who's ignored me for three years, I might have. <laughs> I've seen him every single day, but he just like... <laughs> you probably wake up early, don't you? <laughs> no. When do you uh, get your coffee? I get my coffee at 10. Yeah, the so shop that's only early. Oh, that's early for you. <laughs> yeah, okay. Because I actually have a friend who lives a block away in the other direction, mm -hmm. and I've never seen him. And he's been there for five years, and it's because he wakes up in the morning. Your story about your day yeah. mm -hmm. starts with I wake up in the morning, mm -hmm. and that already you've lost me because you right. woke up in the morning. Right. Because I wake okay. up at like noon. Oh, okay. Uh, there's also like a bunch of artists like to hang out at Syrup. Right. Different parts of the day, though. Right. Uh, <laughs> I haven't met too many. Of the artists locally, we well, right, right above the hive. Have you ever right. like talk to those people? I try not to. It's a, I mean, it's a very different scene. You know what I mean? The hive, for people who don't know, it's like an artist collective, and they're and they're like a juxtaposey, like right. the L.A. bad taste art scene. Right. You know, like scary dolls. Like we were saying, they look like they have a lot of fun. Right. They're, but you're avoiding them. <laughs> they're men in their thirties who haven't grown out of puberty yet. Damn, so. sick burn. <laughs> Up till now, you've been like super hippie, nice about everything and communicating and creativity. And now you're like crazy doll people, fuck them. Let's hear about this. Well, you know, because you look at the, the little girl paintings that they do, yeah, yeah. and obviously, you know, they're growing out of this kind of sexual sensibility that is just so blatant in their work mm -hmm. and it doesn't deviate it just stays there they do it repeatedly and repeatedly and you think oh my god it's like here is this uh person who's in their 30s and they're still channeling and that you know notion. what to like you're now they're making mayonnaise and you're the, <laughs> well you're i don't know if it, i don't know now. if it's mayonnaise no i mean the, i don't know the but important I do think, thing like, is know, that it's a scary there's a, scary a possibility that, that they could go through therapy and achieve <laughs> something rather than inflicting a lot of that imagery on others <laughs> Wow, strong. I mean, there's that one guy who just makes like phone lines with birds on uh -huh. them. Mm -hmm. You got you got in for him oh, too. Oh, he's no, no, he's he's a fine person. <laughs> it's like he was just like a, like a honeycomb that, with that, a marble in it, or that, you know, like that work kind of frightens me. And in fact, the person Nathan who runs that uh, gallery was talking to somebody about me and saying, you know, like, well, Grunk has been through here. Uh, he doesn't stay very long, but he has walked through. Well, one of the reasons I walked through there is because there's this man down at the far end who makes cupcakes every time for Art Walk. So I walk through the gallery to go get a cupcake and walk out of the place. But, of course, Nathan, the owner of the place, Mark said Grunk was here. <laughs> so after all this time, after all your success internationally, you're uh -huh. still totally motivated by free food. <laughs> Yes, I th that'll get <laughs> me anywhere, yes. <laughs> Mayonnaise, yeah. <laughs> 
This is the food show, folks. Nice. <laughs> Absolutely. Before you say anything else, yes, that about anybody. The neighbors. Yes. <laughs> and we can cut that part out if you like. It's not, no, no. Um, you can hold anything in there. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't matter. I mean, I, you know, because they're your neighbors. I'll go in there because, uh-huh. like, once in a while, I walk it down the street because I, I like to go to the fashion bookstore over at the, uh-huh. the plaza. Mm-hmm. The, anyway, oh, yeah. so as long as I go over there and I stop into the hat store because oh, yeah. it's weird. Yeah, the hat store is a museum. Yes, like, it's the milliner. A, it, it's not an actual hat store. It's a, it's to a make show hats. of they of things that you use to make hats, and it's crazy. It's great. It's like a museum. They've yeah. got the actual dodo bird feathers. Just kidding. I thought they they actually, because there's a taxidermy in there, right? There is all these feathers, boxes and boxes of buttons, feathers, coils, all kinds of different things. The hat had its heyday at a particular moment in time. And now a lot of women that go there are actually the black church women who make their crowns, which are these big headdresses that they have on Sundays, yes. So they still go there to pick out all the feathers, to pick the buttons, the formation of the crown that they're going to... So it has a history. To me, that's a museum. Now, I take people there whenever they're from out of town. I said, this is up there with LACMA and MOCA. This is a museum. It's it's pretty fun. (laughs) It's also, they have all these hat molds. Uh So it's like a shape of a hat, but it's made of this bent... It's like a skeleton of a hat. And Irene, who is the owner of the place, has a lot of good stories if you ask her. She'll tell you these stories of downtown L.A., all of that kind of stuff that, you know, is interesting. And when we have, like, 50 episodes, I'll bring her in. Just, like, slide (laughs) her in between the artists. Like, tell us some hat stories. To me, it's, it's kind of what remains of a different time period. And, you know, we had Clifton's Cafeteria, yeah. Which to me is a novelty shop now. It is no longer a real cafeteria. Well, it's not, but the bartenders are very nice now. Oh, I'm sure they are. <laughs> uh, they're bringing people in for the bar atmosphere. Yeah. And, you know, it is kind of avatar, that Hollywood, and then you have a loud sound system that wasn't there before, but you've lost all the people that used to work there. You lost all the colorful characters that were on fixed incomes that could go there and get their cubist jello. You used and, to be able to eat for free if you were yeah. homeless, and now yeah. you can't, mm-hmm. which is like a big drag because the food has not improved. The food is room temperature. Have you ordered anything from there? I have eaten there yeah. before and after right. renovation. Right. And so I thought after the renovation, I thought, well, homeless people aren't allowed to eat here. So at least the food will be good Better, now, yes. maybe. And right. I was like, no, it, that seems kind of cruel right. that they would go to all that trouble to like right. exclude people and they can't even make it like, oh, now the food tastes better. Right. It's like, just let them eat. You yeah. Know, well, it's a different experience for me because I grew up going there. Yeah. And that was one of those places where, you know, the food was not necessarily that great, but you could still get cream of wheat with lumps, which to me, I live for. You're, you have really strange drives. <laughs> Winchell's. <laughs> the cupcake behind the art that scares you. <laughs> cream of wheat with lumps. <laughs> I can see like a very good horror movie. It's like at the end of the hall, there's an extraordinarily well-dressed woman who's coming to help you. Hoyt <laughs> Couture. And the other end of the hall, there's like a bag of like pork skins. 
There's the movie, yes, I can see it all. <laughs> Downtown LA has, has super changed, is yeah. the point, and you've seen it. Right. And is that getting into your work at all? Well, to me, I think, you know, what makes up a city is the people that inhabit that city. And I think the richness and diversity of people that live here uh, and occupy the space here is always interesting. There's the dynamics of different conversations as you walk down the street. You realize some people never leave Spring Street or they go <laughs> yeah. one block over and they're threatened by the fact that a different language is spoken. Yes, and, and that, it keeps the rent low. And that there <laughs> are people cool. that admire polyester dresses and things. Whereas on Spring Street, it's all trying to be cotton, you know, and just very, very nice. But then you walk another block and you have Hill Street, which is the Persian Gulf because it's the jewelry mart. And then you walk another block further up, it's corporate America. So within that short span of yeah. block to block to block, you've experienced so much. Yeah. Then you walk further up north, and it's Chinatown. You make a turn, and it's little Tokyo. So you've experienced so much. And to me, that richness is what keeps me here. Yeah. If you, any of you don't, don't know downtown LA is right now, you can literally walk from literal Skid Row mm -hmm. To the literal most expensive hotel, mm -hmm. well, one of them in in the city, mm -hmm. like in four blocks, right. and so it's one of the reasons that it's still in transition. Well, I'm somebody who likes to overhear conversations, so it's one of those places where you know somebody walking down the block will you'll get the tail end of something or the middle of something, and it's memorable. Yeah. One day I was at the downtown library because I'm still the library kid. I was there, and there was a person, a woman that was working, I don't remember what she was dressed as, probably tweed. Uh, <laughs> she was on the phone because somebody was asking her a question if they had a book at the library. And I'm getting up to leave and walking past her. And I hear her say to the person on the line that she's talking to, oh, yes, sir, we have a book on ventriloquism. It's called how to talk to your hand without looking stupid. And I thought, oh my God, that is wonderful. Went back to the desk, I like wrote that down and said, you know, this is why I'm here. Yeah. So this is why I'm here in downtown no, LA like, still. Like LA is still LA. Uh, That's one I like about it. Mm -hmm. I saw a guy on spring and 7th. I was walking my dog and he was walking his dog in the other direction and he looked down at Chewy and he said that's a terrifying animal like mm. Chewy's like as tall as like right. a high ankle boot just mm -hmm. to keep it within fashion and he's like that's a terrifying animal and I'm like why he's like you can't hear him coming can you <laughs> and I'm like what do you mean he's like you're asleep and he could just crawl up on your face in the middle of the night and you wouldn't hear him. And I'm like, this guy, I can hear him. And I'm looking over and he's like, he's like really invested in telling me about like his, his dog, I guess, crawls on his bed and he's terrified at night. Oh. But it's like every day with that. Like, like mm -hmm. this part of LA is like very New York-y in that right. way. And just like people not making sense in close proximity to each right. other. What did you say? The cream of the crop of the maladjusted? Yes. Well, no, it was something. The elite. The elite of the maladjusted. <laughs> yeah. okay. We've taken up a ton of your time, and you've been super generous. Sure, Thank it's been so fun. Much. Thanks for listening to this episode of We Eat Art. Check out our guests, Gronk, and their latest work. Are you just Gronk on Instagram? L Gronk. L Gronk, yeah. one word. Or? E L, yeah. E L. 
G-R-O-N-K. Space. Grunk, no. Or just underscore L Grunk. Yeah, L Grunk. Okay. Also, John has more of my artwork at my Instagram page, which is John Mejias Papeng, or Tumblr, All Things Papeng. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at Weed Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at Weed Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We also have a Patreon set up. We have goodies available for donors like stickers, zines, and exclusive episodes. Please consider helping us with whatever you can. And you will be one of our supporters at patreon.com backslash Weed Art. All one word. Weed Art is produced by Papen and Mnemonic Recordings. Our sound producer, engineer, editor is Justin Asher. With editing help this week from Colin Wamsgans. <laughs> uh-huh. Simple answers. <laughs>